As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. This episode is brought to you by Calitrin. Text the word UNPLUG to 30605 and I'll send you a link to a wonderful product that can help you finally succeed in shedding that extra weight. I took Calitrin for several weeks last year and I felt great in several ways. I felt stronger, my workouts felt easier, I slept better, I was noticeably trimmer, there was no downside. Text the word UNPLUG to 30605 right now to see this week's special offer on Calitrin. Calitrin contains collagen, the most abundant protein naturally occurring in the human body, which decreases as we age. Taking Calitrin promotes better sleep, more energy, less joint pain, and best of all, weight loss. Calitrin has an 86% success rate with their 90-day supply, and this week, take advantage of my special offer. Buy the 90-day supply and get an extra month free plus free shipping. Ordering is easy. Just text the word UNPLUGGED to 30605, and I'll send you a link to the special offer. Again, text UNPLUGGED to 30605. History isn't just a bunch of names and dates and facts. It's the collection of all the stories throughout human history that explain how and why we got here. Welcome to the History Unplugged podcast, where we look at the forgotten, neglected, strange, and even counterfactual stories that made our world what it is. I'm your host, Scott Rank. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to our series, Key Battles of World War I. You're now at Key Battle number nine, Battle of Cambrai. James, ready to talk about tanks? I am ready. Tanks <laughs> have been kind of slow and lumbering, and they didn't do a whole lot at first. They didn't accomplish a lot, but they're getting gradually more effective. And here, they're really going to have their day in the sun. Right. And they look interesting if you uh, Google images of World War I tanks. Uh, they don't have the big turret on top of them like you would imagine a Sherman tank in World War II. They look more, how do I describe them? It's a, man, I'm even losing my mathematical terms. James, what's the shape that it's a rectangle, but the two sides are slanted at about 45 it's, degrees? It's uh, like a parallelogram. <laughs> Thank you. It's a gigantic yeah. moving uh, several ton parallelogram. Uh, <laughs> yeah, they're really weird. Yeah, a tiny turret on top. We had talked about tanks in uh, previous battles. This isn't the first battle that we see tanks. And tanks are very much a product of World War I because nations are trying to figure out how do you cross no man's land? How do you get across there? If you just send your men over the top, they're going to get hit by machine guns and pillboxes. What do you do? The idea comes from British Army Colonel Ernest Swinton and also William Hankey. He's secretary of the Committee for Imperial Defense. Their idea is to have an armored vehicle with a conveyor belt-like tracks over its wheels. 
What that lets you do is break enemy lines, but you can also go over difficult territory. What the men did was appeal to British Navy Minister Winston Churchill, and he liked this idea of what he called a land boat. So he organized the Land Ships Committee to develop a prototype. In order to keep the project a secret, workers reportedly told the vehicles they were building would be used to carry water on the battlefield. And uh, another theory suggests the shells of the new vehicles resembled water tanks. So anyway, that's how the vehicles shipped in uh, crates labeled tank caused their name to stick. So that's what we call them tanks today. But let's look at the battle first and the background before we get more into tanks. Uh, so yeah, I'm actually if it's I'm going to sneak in something that actually has nothing to do with <laughs> Cambrai. But please, this is going to be a very short episode, folks. There's really not tons and tons of things to say about it. It doesn't have a million moving parts like something like the Somme or the Marne or Verdun. But uh, I want to wrap up the Eastern Front. We talked last or two episodes ago. Or was it three? I can't have lost track. A while back, we talked about the Russian revolutions. And so I want to get us caught up on what was going on in the Eastern Front uh, prior to that happening. In November 1916, Emperor Franz Josef died and was replaced by his, it wasn't his son, I believe it was a nephew. I forgot to put that in the notes, but uh, Karl or Charles, Emperor Karl. He's going to be the last emperor of the Habsburg Empire. Emperor Karl, Karl removed Konrad von Hotzendorf, who had been the Austrian chief of staff for several years. He replaced him with Arthur von Straussenberg. And in March of 1917, the emperor put out peace feelers to the allies. He actually starts looking into the possibility of signing a separate peace, uh, you know, <laughs> bailing on Germany basically and, and saying, we're done. But nothing came of this. The allies weren't really interested. On July 1st, 1917, okay, this is in the period where Russia was being ruled by the provisional government, the sort of democratic government under the, under the leadership of Alexander Kerensky. Uh, the Bolsheviks had not taken over yet. So on July 1st, 1917, a Russian force of 200,000 led by our old friend Alexei Brusilov, the, the great Russian general, they began an offensive aimed at Lemberg. They pushed the Austrians back several miles and took thousands of prisoners. And by the 13th, the Russians were approaching the Hungarian border. This offensive is usually called the Kerensky Offensive after the minister of war slash leader of Russia, Alexander Kerensky, who went to the field himself to provide support. On July 19th, German and Austrian forces counterattacked, pushing back the Russians, capturing 6,000 prisoners and causing a rift in the Russian lines. In other words, they were starting to break through. By the end of July, the Russians had begun fleeing and many deserted. They were voting with their feet, as we said before. <laughs> it's like, we, we are done. On August 1st, Kerensky replaced Brusilov with another general named Lev Kornilov, or Kornilov as the Russian commander-in-chief in the east, but the Germans keep pushing forward. On September, 4th, September 1st, they began bombarding the city of Riga, which is in modern-day Latvia. The Russian garrison fell back, and the Germans captured the city. In October, the Germans began an amphibious assault called Operation Albion. By the end of the month, they had captured the islands off the Baltic coast and then landed on the Russian mainland and were threatening Petrograd. And in November 17th, the Russian-German front went silent, of course, because the Bolsheviks gained control and pretty much ended the war. 
Germany began transferring 500,000 men from the east to the west. So just to kind of make that official, we had touched on uh, some of those things previously, but not necessarily the military details. So that's uh, it. The, the, the war in the east ends, as we've already seen, but again, it bears repeating, and many hundreds of thousands of German troops are going to go back to the west to fight in 1918. All right, so now let's move on to Cambrai. We're back on the Western Front now. We we saw last time uh, how the British and French had fought a series of horrific and mostly inconclusive battles in 1917, including the Nivelle Offensive, Arras, Messines, and Third Ypres. Third Ypres, by the way, was our last key battle, and we forgot to mention it was key battle number eight. This is going to be key battle number nine, Cambrai. Uh, and... I'm going to turn it over to Scott for a minute. He's going to talk a little bit more about the background of tanks as they had been used in World War One. Right, because they are significant in this battle. The first time they appear is in the Battle of the Somme, but they were rushed into the battle because the British were desperate to break the stalemate. Because they were rushed in, the tanks didn't have sufficient testing and the crews weren't trained on this new technology. They'd never trained with infantry units and in how to combine them into the assault. Some of the tank commanders, they'd never even fired practice rounds from their guns. So the first time you're using it is in battle. And is that like on the job training? <laughs> and that's not a good thing to do on the job. I mean, there's fake it till you make it. That's fine if you have a new job and you don't really know how to use Microsoft Excel and you're figuring out pivot tables. Fine. Fake it till you make it on that. Don't fake it till you make it on a tank, which is what happens in the song. <laughs> no. So in that battle of the 49 Mark I tanks that were sent to the battlefield, 17 were sidelined by mechanical failure even before the offensive could begin. Uh, many of them, but anyway, with Cambrai, it's different. Um, uh, when 32 banks were sent into battle, they were mowed down by barbed wire. They struggled to cross the trenches and artillery craters in no man's land. Uh, some of them ditched, um, were forced to be ditched into the broken ground. Uh, some other, this is, uh, the battle of the, um, Psalm. I'm just mentioning what it's like to be inside one of these tanks. Uh, you had eight man crews, uh, two drivers and it was hot in there. They didn't vent heat. This isn't, uh, no AC, Scott. no AC. I think it, <laughs> there were desert storm, um, when they had AC in those. And I remember some Vietnam tank commanders would complain just how easy the troops had it. Well, Vietnam guys would not understand at all what it would like to be one of these. This isn't as bad as um, being in the CMS Hunley, the Confederate submarine. Whenever I think yeah. of the worst thing to be trapped in, that's what my mind goes to. So you can at least escape from a World War One tank, but while you're in there, um, it's hot. Uh, the engines are so loud that the crews have to communicate by hand signals. Uh, their 29-ton machines don't offer as much protection as they hope for. When Germans first encounter them, uh, some of them would run away, not really knowing what to do, but others would just fire their machine guns and pistols and grenades and artillery. And the if the armor was pierced, then you have scalding metal shards spraying the crews. It's like shrapnel inside. Uh, it burns their hands and their faces, so not pleasant in the beginning. But anyway, that's all I just wanted to mention on how tanks are, even though they're better in Cambrai, they're still very unwieldy and very experimental at this time. Yeah, it would not be a fun assignment. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so 
we talked about these other battles, none of which had gone well in 1917, highlighting in Third Ypres, Passchendaele, which was probably the worst from the British standpoint, the, the Battle of Mud, basically. But Marshal Haig, uh, Douglas Haig, he tried to make one last push before winter set in. And so he launched another attack, and this is going to be the Battle of Cambrai, which is our ninth key battle. We, we cheated this time. We've got 12 instead of, <laughs> instead of 10. We just couldn't fit it into just 10. But anyway, it's more episodes for you guys to listen to, right? Yeah. All right. So on November 20th, 1917, the battle began at 6 a.m. with a surprise, surprise. Can you guess? Um, an artillery. Oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, with an artillery barrage, of course. That's how every World War I battle starts, pretty much. A thousand guns, and then they launched six infantry divisions of the British Third Army, supported by nine tank corps. There were 476 total tanks with, and I keep seeing this in the sources, 378 total fighting tanks. Uh, I don't know what the kind of tanks the other hundred were. <laughs> Water tanks? I don't know. <laughs> Non-fighting tanks. It's like escorts that you have in a flotilla. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, maybe so. Uh, they just weren't fully equipped for battle. I, I could never nail down exactly what, what the difference is between a fighting tank and a, and a, a not-fighting tank. But anyway, any way you slice it, this is a lot of tanks for World War One. This is huge. 378 fully armed tanks are heading out toward the Germans. They also had 300 supporting aircraft, so a pretty impressive force, a mixed force the British are launching. And sure enough, the tanks broke through the Hindenburg Line up to four miles deep. The British captured 8,000 prisoners and 100 guns on the first day alone. Um, but by then, 180 tanks were already out of the action. One German soldier is believed to have taken out seven tanks all by himself. How about that, Mr. Anti-Tank? <laughs> I don't know. We don't. I don't know what his name was, but uh, that's pretty impressive to take out seven tanks. I'm sure he, if he lived, he got quite a few awards for that. Uh, here's a quote from a German lieutenant. This is a very interesting quote. It's a little on the long side, but it's worth listening to. The German lieutenant said this: "When the first tanks passed the first line, we thought we would be compelled to retreat toward Berlin. I remember one tank by the name of Hyena." which advanced very far and suddenly stopped about 1,000 yards from my little dugout. Some of the boys discovered they could stop the tanks by throwing a hand grenade into the manhole at the top. Once this was known, the boy realized there was a blind spot, that the machine guns couldn't reach every point around the tank, and these points were very important in the defense. I was shocked and felt very sorry for those fellows in the tanks because there was no escape for them. Yep, they found the weakness. They found the soft belly of the dragon. That's absolutely. Yeah. I think about in the Hobbit Bard who <laughs> shot that arrow at that one little spot on the dragon. But uh, that's from G.J. Meyer, uh, A World Undone, which is my favorite one volume history of World War One. I. I highly recommend that. Uh, so, yeah, the, the tanks were really doing a lot of damage at first. But over time, the Germans discovered their weak spots. They also rushed a new German division into place. This is a fresh division. They, they And they halted the British advance. Nevertheless, despite this stopping of the advance, the British saw this as their greatest victory of the war. Church bells tolled throughout Great Britain. And that was the first time this had happened during the entire war. So not a great, tr a truly great victory for the British, but nevertheless, they're starting to make a little bit of progress. 
something good, some good news for the people back home. Yeah, six miles, if nothing else, if you like you're escaping the trenches, that much movement is absolutely incredible on the Western Front. It's like the deep freeze, the deadlock of the last several years is finally starting to thaw. Exactly. Now, the Germans, of course, they're not done by any stretch of the imagination. They counterattacked. At Burlone Wood, the Germans pushed the British back. They also recovered 100 captured guns. The next day, the British dug into a salient, which is always a precarious position. A salient is basically a big bulge that points into the other side. November 30th, the Germans attacked swiftly, taking large casualties and gaining ground, but they were stopped by the British tanks. And on December 3rd, the Germans captured a town called La Vaquerie, and nearly all British gains had been erased. Gas was lingering everywhere. So they basically, because of the gas and because of the weather, uh, they had to call off the fighting. So again, another in a long, long series of battles where the t- attacking side seems to make progress, but then they're driven back, and then the uh, defenders counterattack and retake all the ground that was taken by the attackers. Does that sound familiar, Scott? <laughs> it's constantly back and forth. Uh, they're... When, when I hear this, my mind goes to an article in The Onion, and it's a fictional article from World War I, and it's something like 400,000 soldiers die to capture six inches of land. And then there's a quote, fake quote from Woodrow Wilson that this half foot is now liberated from the whip of tyranny. And I mean, <laughs> you laugh at just the, um, the, just the sadness of it all, that so much sacrifice, so much planning, and there's a few days of joy. You have this new weapon and you feel like the deadlock is being broken and then it's gone. Right. Yeah. You got to give, you know, give kudos to the Germans because we have to remember that these soldiers are, are just about starving by this point. They're consuming a thousand, 1200 calories a day and they're running out of supplies and yet they still fight like there's no tomorrow. They, I mean, they're defend, defending their homeland. At least they feel like they are. They're still in France technically, but, um, they their fighting spirit is is simply amazing. The Allies and this is going to happen in World War II. They're going to just say, "You guys are beaten. Why don't you just give up?" But they Germans don't give up. <laughs> All right, let's move into the results of the battle. Uh, total casualties were about forty thousand on each side, which is sounds like a lot, but that's actually really small compared to some of the other battles that we've seen. There were around nine thousand British and eleven thousand German prisoners taken. But one of the key things of this is that both sides learned that tanks, when properly deployed, could have a big effect on battle, particularly with breaking through barbed wire. Germany showed the effectiveness of combining stormtroop attacks, gas, artillery, and trench mortars. The London Times called the battle one of the most ghastly stories in English history. And then I've got a couple more quotes from G.J. Meyer. I just He really has a way with words and really sums things up well. This is what he said about the Battle of Cambrai. Yet another British offensive had been for nothing. It had not, however, been without meaning. Generals on both sides saw that the new tanks, if properly used, could have produced very different results, that Cambrai was a sign of things to come. And then if I may, one more quote from Meyer, wrapping up the year of 1917. He says, and so ended 1917. On the Western Front, the year had taken the lives of 226,000 British, 136,000 French, and 121,000 German soldiers. And still, the stalemate continued. Between them, 
Arras, the Nouvelle Offensive, 3rd Ypres, and Cambrai had rendered the French and the British incapable of mounting a major offensive at the end of the approaching winter. At the same time, they had destroyed the Germans' confidence in their defensive system. These two facts would shape the year ahead. They would put the conflict on the road to its end at last. And there we go. So not a very sunny assessment uh, to what happened in 1917 for the Allies or for the Germans. Right. It's almost like the there, there's not a victor. The two sides are just whittled down into something so small that the war ends simply for a lack of combatants at, at one point. If, if From one sense, it seems like. Um, one other thing I want to mention is uh, the quote that you mentioned about tanks, a uh, sign of things to come. There really is a lot of World War One, or a sign of things to come, that there are tactics from the 19th century. There's technology that it seems like an anachronism, but it's still being used of cavalry charges. You still see a cavalry charge and a cavalry division right next to machine guns and airplanes and this new technology that's emerging that's going to define the 20th century. In the Middle East, you have camels that are being used as pack animals by the millions uh, in the Ottoman Empire and elsewhere. And General Patton, well, not general at the time, but with his experience with tanks in World War I, he has comments about their future potential. At the time, even though tanks were a newfangled technology, there was a lot of argument and debate about what do you do with them? How are they combined into the overall military strategy? Do they go alongside infantry? Do we treat them like cavalry? They're sort of like cavalry. It's a mechanized horse. So are they their own separate division? They will be their own division later, but that's not the case here. So after World War I, what Patton wrote is that tanks are not motorized cavalry. They are tanks, a new auxiliary arm whose purpose is ever and always to facilitate the advance of the master arm, the infantry on the field of battle. So before the next war, before World War II, he recognized that tanks could be an offensive force on their own. And tanks dominate 20th century warfare, especially World War II, when the Nazi panzer divisions devastate uh, Europe and they're a central part of their blitzkrieg attacks. And the defenses that France and others set up before World War II are completely rolled over by tanks and other technology. So we're seeing glimmers of their potential. But much like airplanes, there's only glimmers, and they're going to come into fruition later. So that's about all I have to say on this battle. Anything else you want to add, James? That's all I have. All right. Well, Germany is pushed back. They return it, and they are going to go on the offensive. So in the next episode, we're going to be looking at key battle. Is it 10? Do I have that right? Yes. Okay. Number 10. Key yes. battle 10. Okay. The 1980 German Spring Offenses. Well, that's all for today's episode. Thanks for sticking with me all the way to the end. First off, I'd like to thank History Unplugged's Spy Masters, which you can easily become, and I'll explain what that is after listing them off. They are, in no particular order, Baron Fraser, Chris C., David Santi, Josh from VFW Post 2285, Jake Harrington, Josh Reddick, Jeff Mitchell, owner of Mountain West Commercial Las Vegas, Michael from New York, Michael Piccinetti, Nick Brooks, Rob from Chicago, Salvador Sanchez, Tom from Ohio, Moondoggy from Ohio, Bill Ivey, Bruce Ashby from Wire Meets Wood Guitars, WMWGuitars.com, 
Los, Sergeant Hooch, Sumo41, and Willie from New Jersey. Now, having thanked my spy masters, I'd like to mention some ways you can get more involved with what I'm doing with History Unplugged. First, if you want to comment on the most recent episodes, you can check out the History Unplugged Facebook or YouTube page, which are video recordings of all the episodes, and they often come out before the audio episodes do. Second, please like and subscribe to the show on the podcast player of your choice. This helps the show grow and find new listeners. Finally, the best way you can get involved is to join History Unplugged's membership program called the Dalton's Rangers. This is the place where you can directly partner with me when it comes to the creation of the sorts of episodes I do, or I can most directly talk with you, the listener. I call it the Knowlton's Rangers because they were George Washington's spies during the Revolutionary War. Go to patreon.com unplugged and you can join at three levels. Join at the scout level, you'll get early access to all new episodes and completely ad-free episodes, and I have about 500 by now. Join at the intelligence officer level. You get all the same stuff as level one, and you also get premium episodes. I'm doing a series on the life of Audie Murphy, on Americans who fought in World War I for the French Foreign Legion, and another series on Teddy Roosevelt's adventures in the Dakota Badlands. I have about 50 or so of these episodes now. Finally, if you join at the Spy Master level, you get all the things from the first two tiers. You get a shout out to you and or your business at the end of each episode. You get three hardcover books, and you can ask me a question on absolutely anything in history, and I will devote an entire episode to answering it. So check out all those bonuses by going to patreon.com slash unplugged. Listeners, that is all for today's episode. Thank you so much for listening and see you next time. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. War has played a key role in the history of the United States, from the nation's founding right down to the present. Wars made the United States independent, kept it together, increased its size, and established it as a global superpower. Hi, I'm James Early, host of the Key Battles of American History podcast. In each episode, I discuss American history through the lens of the most important battles of America's wars. To start listening now, Go to ParthenonPodcast.com or search Key Battles of American History on your favorite podcasting platform.